0: You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Now, kind of leading up to this election, um, i had been watching a video series um, on the American Civil War. And there were and, and I wasn't really watching it for any particular insights into. Uh, today's political culture, but as I'm kind of watching this, I I get probably about halfway through it, and I begin to realize there are really some very incredible parallels uh, of what was happening in the Civil War to kind of what's going on um, in America. So I I intentionally kind of went back to the very beginning, and I kind of want to watch this now from that viewpoint, from that Perspective, and as many of you know, the the single kind of the uh, issue that that people were kind of uh, um, kind of you know uh, gathering around was the issue of slavery, um, and. Many of you know the North was kind of seen as the abolitionists; they uh, they were against slavery, while the South uh, was kind of uh, perceived as being for it. And because of this issue of slavery, where the North and the South were at on these different, uh, this very very different issue, it created some very deep and some very dividing. Um, lines and disagreements and conflicts in our country. I mean, you could, you could say in many ways our nation was very divided. And you feel that today, don't you? you? I mean, we all feel, regardless of what side you're on, the north or the south, all of us feel as a nation we are deeply divided, And the conflicts and the disagreements, what was really interesting back in in, in the 1800s, the issues of slavery, the way it kind of began to play itself out was it kind of began that people are having, um, they're kind of having verbal disagreements. I mean, I I think it kind of starts off Friendly, you know, you're able to kind of talk to family and friends about your differences, where you're at, and you come away from that with a sense of, of love. Um, and, and even though you're, you're thinking differently, uh, you still have a great deal of respect for those family and friends. What I noticed in the Civil War was that as time went on and that issue of slavery became kind of uh, more polarizing. Um, the verbal communications kind of started ratcheting up. To where people were were then beginning to be very disrespectful. They were saying very angry, uh, very hateful things. They're coming away from those discussions with family and friends, now deciding, I don't want anything to do with them. I'll never talk to them again. You know, it's kind of the equivalent, I'm going to um, um, unfriend them on Facebook. Um, You know, that's kind of where they were at in that. And then what's also very interesting is you watch that progression in the Civil War. It kind of went from the verbal into where they started pushing and shoving one another. All of a sudden, words were not strong enough to tell you how I feel. Now I'm going to show you how I feel. And then it started in the pushing and shoving, and then fists were starting to be thrown. And then as you kind of watch this progression in the Civil War, it kind of comes to where people begin resorting to shooting one another. Their differences have divided them, um, and it just became very, very uh, toxic, Um, and You know, people really kind of started justifying that because now they didn't just see you as someone I disagree with. You are now my enemy. We have a similar progression in our country right now. A lot of this has led up to this election. I think we've also seen this play out in the last four years um, of this presidency. I think we have all witnessed, again, just this progression of the verbal stuff. It's given way to physical stuff. We see a lot of looting, a lot of violence, a lot of rioting out there. Family and friends who no longer speak to one another, have nothing to do with each other because of their political, social differences. It's interesting to me that this progression has led to, in really the last month, to where now people are being shot and killed. It's interesting that a certain group like Antifa are now openly calling for the assassination of people they they vehemently disagree with. And they're telling their members, here are the people. If you get a shot at them and there's no cops around, take it and shoot to kill. So we, we're watching this same progression um, there. And, and I believe if something doesn't change, I do fear this will continue to escalate. Um, and I know, I believe that a vast majority of the American people are not advocating for this. They are not uh, good with this, uh, especially those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Now, it's also interesting, as as I'm watching this series on the American Civil War, that during the election of Abraham Lincoln as the president of the United States, uh, Lincoln's name did not appear on 10 of the ballots in the southern states. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. His name did not appear in 10 of the southern states during the election of Abraham Lincoln. And many of you know Abraham Lincoln went on to win that election. And when the South heard that Abraham Lincoln was now the president of the United States, their reaction was, what? I didn't vote for him. He wasn't even on the ballot. We didn't even know he was running for president. And as a result of that, many people in the South referred to Lincoln as an illegitimate president. He's not my president. In 2016, after Trump won the presidency, many people who did not vote for him, did not like him, also began to refer to him as an illegitimate president. He is not my president. Sound familiar? On Facebook last night, people are tagging in the name uh, President-elect Biden and and with with the hashtag not my president illegitimate president. Now I'm not saying all of this is going to lead. I'm just pointing out some very very interesting parallels. And I'm not saying that all of this is going to lead to another civil war, but I think it does begin to raise the question for those of us that are followers of Christ Those of us that aspire to the higher principles of the kingdom of God, what should be our response to those we may perceive as an enemy, or certainly someone that we don't agree with or see eye to eye with? How do we respond to somebody who may be diametrically opposed to us politically and socially? How do we love those we really don't agree with or find ourselves, again, in stark opposition to? In Matthew 5, 43 through 45, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And there he says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus says, but I say to you, he says, I, I'm gonna call you to a higher truth. I'm gonna call you to a higher kingdom principle. This is where you were. This is where I'm inviting you. This is where I am calling you to a higher kingdom principle. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he tells us why. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming at. That's what we're shooting for as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters who are called to and invited into the kingdom of God, a higher, a different, a better, more honorable way of thinking, of speaking, of acting. This is what we are called to. to reflect him, to reflect the kingdom of God in everything we say, in everything we do. So how do we do that, and what does it look like, especially in times like these? Now, to answer that question, and I'm gonna gonna come at this a number of different ways over the next couple of weeks, I wanna look this morning at one of the greatest Old Testament kings uh, who ever lived named David, And I want to show you how he dealt with a friend who later became an enemy. And in some ways, this was all about politics. If you know anything about David, and someone were to ask you, what is the greatest victory you believe David ever won, many people would probably respond to that question by saying, when David conquered and killed Goliath. And you would be right. It was one of David's greatest victories. Not his only one, but certainly a great victory of David's. I also believe that one of those great victories that David had really wasn't on the battlefield But it really kind of happened in a cave. And it wasn't a giant that David was facing on the outside as much as it was a giant that David was seeking to conquer on the inside. Because there was something far more powerful than Goliath at work inside of David. And that was the potential for anger, for rage, for bitterness, for retaliation, for unforgiveness. Because you see, fighting Goliath took stepping up. But when you're fighting against anger, against retaliation, unforgiveness, that requires stepping down. That requires taking a knee. Fighting Goliath took guts Fighting anger, impatience, jealousy takes grace. Fighting Goliath takes might. But fighting revenge, that temptation to settle old scores in the ways of this kingdom, fighting against that kind of enemy takes mercy and a power that is beyond ourselves. Now, the story that unfolds is really unexpected. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I just encourage you, invite you to open that up to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you go back just a few chapters there, David has killed the giant Goliath. He's conquered over that Philistine And you would think that that would have led to parades, rewards, medals, promotions, accolades, and and David would be on easy street. But instead, the aftermath of that killing of Goliath led David into basically 10 years of pure hell. Not what you would have expected. Why? Well, David did kill the Philistine. He did conquer Goliath. And in many ways, he he was worthy of a medal of honor. He was worthy of being the MVP of the Israeli army. He was uh, uh, worthy of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was worthy of winning a Nobel Peace Prize. He was, at that moment, the heavyweight champion of the world. He had become an overnight celebrity Posters of David were hanging all over the walls of young Israel girls. They loved David. He goes on to really kind of become the number one hero in all of the nation of Israel. And because of all of that surging popularity mixed in with a great amount of jealousy and envy, David goes on to become the number one enemy of King Saul, the reigning king of Israel at that time. For some reason, Saul begins to see and to perceive David as a threat to his throne, a threat to his kingdom, a threat to his son, Jonathan, who should have been the next in line? This is where it all kind of becomes very political for Saul. And now David's approval ratings have smashed through the roof, and he's more popular than King Saul. David's star is rising, Jonathan's star was falling, and King Saul feels the need to step in and do something to stop that and to reverse that. So blinded by hatred, burning with jealousy, King Saul begins to make plans to eliminate and to kill David, the number one goal of his life. Now up to this point in his life, David has been King Saul's chief musician And there was a time where Saul loved and and oftentimes would request David to come in and to play his harp in order to soothe um, the the, the demonic influences that were moving around uh, in Saul's heart and life. However, one day while David was playing on on, uh, his harp, an evil spirit overcomes King Saul and he throws a spear at David and luckily he misses David and it hits the wall. Then when King Saul learned that his daughter, Michal, was in love with David, Saul told David, you can have her hand in marriage, but I want you to go and to get me the foreskins of a 100 Philistines. Now don't ask me what he wanted with those, it's what he requested. And I think the main reason Saul requested that of David was that King Saul hoped that at least one out of those 100 Philistines, would be able to kill David. At this point, David goes and he doubles down and he delivers Saul not just 100, but 200 foreskins. When that plan failed, King Saul hires a squad of hitmen, his best soldiers, to go and to assassinate David in bed, but Mikhail finds out about that plan, and she allows David to escape before they get there. At this point, Saul is so consumed, he is so overrun by his anger, by his jealousy, he decides to take matters into his own hands, and he assembles his entire army to go after that one man, David. So I, I, I just I'm setting this up, and now I'm at. 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took three thousand able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, and Getty is a very, very interesting place in Israel. It, it really is a very popular tourist attraction. About a million people go to and annually. If you go there, you're going to find beautiful waterfalls, um, springs of water. You'll see many, many caves there in En Gedi. And the events of 1 Samuel chapter 24 all kind of happen there in one of those caves caves there in En Gedi. And as you'll come to see, Saul kind of gets David cornered, and David is given What to many kind of looked like a perfect opportunity to take Saul out, to conquer one of his enemies, to kind of end his misery and to kind of begin his reign as the king of Israel and to begin to sleep in peace once again. So David is given this opportunity for revenge, this chance to take out an enemy But he didn't take it. And the reasons David didn't take it are the same reasons you and I should not take any opportunity for revenge, for anger, for retaliation, to act out on our anger. And the three things that David did are the same three things we're gonna need to do to defeat the power of and win against the battle of revenge, anger, and retaliation. So David kind of takes three positions. Next week, I wanna kind of come at this from more of a kingdom angle, kind of coming more from what the scriptures talk about, but I wanna kind of come, because David is, sees the kingdom of God. He also sees the kingdoms of this world. And, and David understands both things are operating at the same time. He's of the kingdom of this, uh, of this world, but, but David is someone who thinks, he acts, he speaks uh, as being from the kingdom of God. And, and in order for David to, to stay in that place, in that position of the kingdom of God, he does three things in this situation, and they're the same three things that we're going to need to do if we want to walk in the kingdom of God, if we want to reflect the nature of the kingdom of God, if we want to speak the nature of the kingdom of God, we've got to do these three thing, These three same things. We have got to take these same three positions. First position David takes is position of integrity. story begins with somewhat of an embarrassing, it's very awkward, some of you will find it funny, Verse 3, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there again in Engedi, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, there's no polite way to put this. There's no tender way of, of interjecting this into the story. Saul feels the call of nature, feels the need to relieve himself, so he goes into a cave. Now... Every one of us know that when you go in to go to the bathroom, you are there to do one of two things, number one or number two, right? Those are the only two choices you've got. So Saul goes into the cave to do either number one or number two. Those are his only two choices. So Saul goes in the cave to do number two. Now, the reason I know this is because David could not have pulled off what David pulled off if Saul was in the cave to do number one. Now, before any of you say, TMI, you'll be happy to know this particular reference, this type of storyline is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, and I, for one, am greatly relieved. And because Saul's in the cave to do number two, and that's why I know he was in there to do number two, is he's got to take off all of his armor. He's got to remove pretty much most, if not all, of his clothes, and he's got to put himself in a very delicate and in a very vulnerable position. So while Saul's there in the cave kind of doing his business, he does not realize that basically David is in the stall next to him. And this is where people see David has his chance. He's got this golden opportunity to take Saul out. Here is the man who has been hunting him for 10 years, trying to kill him, again, for political reasons and David knows if the situation were reversed here and it was David in the cave doing his business and Saul was in the, cave, in the stall next and able to strike, David knew there's no question what Saul or one of Saul's men would have done. David's men know it too. That's why in verse four it says, the men that were with David, they said to David, 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 hey, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Remember that day that that God gave you this word, David? I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Remember that prophetic word, David? Today is the day. Now, this is the situation, this is the time where the word of the Lord can be fulfilled. And you fully expect to see David take that opportunity and to put his sword right through Saul's backside, but he doesn't. He does this instead. Verse 4 continues Then David crept up unnoticed and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So, why didn't he kill Saul? He deserved it, he had it coming. Saul asked for it. Nobody who knew the story would blame David. And then it says afterward, after David cuts that corner of the robe, it goes on in verse 4, and it says, David was convicted or conscious struck for having cut off a corner of his robe. David doesn't feel celebratory. He feels convicted. Why? Why is he bothered? Why is he upset? Why is he convicted? Why didn't he just kill Saul when he had the chance? The answer is found in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. What David understood, what we need to understand is the fact that Saul is still the king of Israel. The king of Israel, Saul, is still God's man on the throne. He may not be the king he needs to be, saul may not be the king he should be but saul is still king over israel saul is still god's anointed god's appointed king and david understood that when i was in high school and college i worked for montgomery wards department store and their motto was the customer is king You don't know how many times I had to be reminded of that motto in dealing with customers. Because there were times customers came in with the most outrageous stories and claims about a product that we had sold to them. And we were to never argue with them. We were to never disagree with them because the motto was the customer is king. The customer is king. Uh, is always right, is what that meant. And that was drilled into us when we worked for that company. The customer may not always be right, but the customer is still king. What is the relevance here? Because of what David said in verse 6, David said to his men, the Lord forbid... That I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David understood, if I come against God's anointed, God's appointed, I will be coming against God himself. Doesn't mean Saul was a good king, that he was a right king, that he was an honorable king, but he was king. He was God's anointed, God's appointed. And David knew it was coming against God. It was violating God's law, regardless of any other factor. He knew it was against God's laws and principles. It was against the kingdom principles to kill uh, Saul while he was still king over Israel. And David understood, you do not dishonor, you do not disrespect the king, much less murder the king. When you and I, when we are facing a choice of actions in any situation, we can always know what to do by asking ourselves this simple question. What is the right thing to do? What does God say to do? Integrity is the quality or state of being complete or undivided. And David was completely devoted, and he was undivided in his relationship, his walk, and his obedience to God. And David was not going to allow anything to allow him to violate that. That's integrity. You see, all of David's men They're standing around David. They're looking at all of the other options that are there before David. They're weighing the pros and cons. They're playing and allowing scenarios to be played out in their minds. They're kind of looking at the circumstances. They see the upside, the downsides. They're kind of following their instincts. They're kind of telling each other, this is what I would do if I were David but they were not asking or thinking about the most important thing, and that is what is the right thing to do? What is God calling me to do? And what set David apart from his men and what will separate us and set us apart from others is this. David understood that what is right is not what we think is right, at the moment, or what we feel is right in the moment. It all comes down to what does God say, what does he say is right at any and every moment and circumstance. I don't care how great the opportunity. If you either have to violate your conscience or God's word, it's always, always, always the wrong opportunity. It's the wrong choice. I want to just share with you three roads that you can take in the way you treat other people there's the low road the middle road the high roll i call the low road the satanic level that's the road to hell that's the road that leads to hell and that's when you return evil for good that's the low road the road to hell then there's the middle road i call that the world's way the world's kingdom The way the world thinks and walks and acts. And that's when you return good for good. It makes sense. It's logical. It's like two little boys who got into a fight. When the teacher goes and separated them and asked them what happened, one little boy said, Well, it all started when he hit me back. Makes sense? Sounds like the right thing to do? It's the normal way of doing things. It's the world's way. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You hit me, I hit you. You scratch my back, yeah, I'll scratch yours. You do me wrong, I do you wrong. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back 10 times harder. That's the middle road. That's the world's way. Then there's the high road, the supreme level, what we want to call the kingdom way. The kingdom way is where you return good for evil. 1 Peter 3.11 refers to this level, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. This is what David did. This is what we're called to do as followers of, Of Christ. If you're going to walk in the kingdom of God, if you're going to speak the language of the kingdom of God, if you're going to do the acts of the kingdom of God, this is the level you got to walk at. It's the level you got to think at, it's the level you got to speak from. And Saul acknowledges this in verse 17 when he says this to David. Now look at this response You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Another translation, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Saul said to David, you're a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. David chose the high road, the kingdom way. And I would encourage you and I to always take the high road, the supreme level, the kingdom way, because there's usually not a lot of traffic on it. The high road is the road of integrity. It is the road that God himself, it is the road that Jesus walked on. It is the road that Jesus will, will lead us along. It is the road that Jesus will, will speak to us from. So that's that first, that that position of, Integrity. Next week, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick this up, and I'm gonna just come at it from a little bit of a different angle. But I want to talk about the position of um, respect. That that's the second position um, that uh, David uh, takes there. And then we're gonna talk about the position of humility. Um, and so I just want to encourage you this week. Just kind of get into this story a little bit. Uh, First Samuel uh, chapter twenty four. Um, and and again, um, just allow God to kind of begin to uh, show you ways that, that that would encourage you to begin to walk like David walked, to think like David thought, to speak like David uh, spoke. And I said, we're we're going to kind of get in this, and we'll kind of unpack this um, a little bit more um, next week. I, I just I just encourage you. Um, with everything that's kind of gone on this week. And it, it is just to, to remember, I mean, the book of Kings, especially, you know, uh, um, throughout Israel's history, I mean, there, were, there were very, very good kings, and there were very, very evil kings. Um, and God had a plan for all of it. And, and I am not here to say that, that Trump or Biden uh, are good or evil kings. Um, all I'm here to simply say is it doesn't matter. God has a plan for whatever um, is going forward. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, I believe that just as throughout the nation of Israel, God uh, um, continually uh, brought Israel where they needed uh, to be. I believe that God, through all of this, is going to bring the church, to bring you and I, to where we need to be. And, And we couldn't have gotten there any other way any other way. And so just in, the, in this place of integrity, um, maybe for some of us in our response this, is, this, this week, maybe that's just the first step that we just really need to take as we kind of begin to process everything that's happening out there is let's walk in a place of integrity. Before you respond, before you post um, anything, before you react to somebody, um, just ask yourself that question that David asked. What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to say? What is the right way to act? How would God have me respond? How would God have me react in this situation? Doesn't matter what others are doing around you. All that matters is what is God calling you? What, what, is, what is God leading you to do, to say, and to be? That is that place of integrity. It is the place that God uh, is is calling His people uh, to. And so, so that l- let's just commit to that first step this morning. That as we walk out of here, and we go back into all of the chaos and and celebration and conf- confusion, that we're we're just we're committed to be people of integrity. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that while there are many circumstances and many things going on around us that we don't fully understand, things that will come to be uh, in this week that we didn't expect, that, God, none of this catches you by surprise, none of this catches you off guard. As a matter of fact, God, everything is happening according to your plan. None of this and no one is beyond your control. So, Father, we just ask, Lord, that in the places of the known, in the places of the unknown, that, God, you would help us to walk as people of integrity. That God, we would be mindful of who we are, of whose we are. That we would remember that we represent the King of Kings. That we're your children. And that we reflect a kingdom. That we reflect a higher way of thinking. That we've been invited into a kingdom. A way of higher speaking. A kingdom that would challenge and call us to act differently. To be obedient to you regardless of what's happening around us, God. That our eyes would be on you. That our goal... Our heartfelt desire would be to honor, to glorify you in everything. That even though the circumstances may change, that unexpected things may come our way, you never change. Your ways never change. Your thinking never changes. Your word never changes. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father God, I just pray for those areas, those places in our lives where we need to step from this kingdom into your kingdom. To go from our way of thinking to your way of thinking. That, God, we would hear that call. We We would see that way in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And we want to walk in that way. We want to reflect that truth. Because in that, there is eternal life. And that's the ultimate goal. That's the target we're shooting for. is eternal life, to know you, to trust you, to love you with all of our heart, our mind and our soul, as David did, to chase after you, to become men and women who are after the heart of God. So, Father, this morning we just commit ourselves to that focus and to that pursuit. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your Holy Spirit that equips and enables and empowers us to do all of that and so much more. I thank you, Father, for the joy, the peace, for your goodness, for your kindness. And may that just surround, may that just fill us and overwhelm us. May it influence all that we do and all that we say. We thank you for your power, your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.